Greetings, I'm Chris Peppel, and you are listening to my Look to See Me podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful day and hope you've had a wonderful week. It's been crazy weather here. Within seven days, it's been 70 degrees, warm enough to get in some great hikes. Then it's been cold again, got down to like 27 little snow flurries. Bad weather came through even further south than I am, some tornadoes, and now it's getting warm again. Today's going to be back up into the 60s, going to try to get in a hike. So this week has been unpredictable and a little bit crazy. And I think about today, I'm going to tie that in because today we're going to talk about remembering and truth. There are times where life has been crazy and unpredictable and we have to piece together what we remember. Was this a warm week? Was this a cold week? You know, what What was the weather like? Life is like that. Go back and look at what we remember. What we felt. What we understood about a certain amount of time. And sometimes we realize that there's gaps in what we remember and what we understood at the time. I'm, I'm thinking about a particular time in my life. Growing up, uh, there was um, three, three of us cousins that would stay at my maternal grandmother's house and played. Hey, she gave us the freedom to find pockets of time to just be kids. No matter how hard life was, what was going on around us, she made life fun. Hey, she's where I get my storytelling from. She would just tell stories with me forever. We, she didn't like to turn the lights on at night. She liked to save electricity. And she was born in 1898. So put it in perspective of she was used to not necessarily having electric lights on all of the time. So that didn't that didn't bother her for that. She liked it for dusk. I think she's the one who also taught me to like dusk. My favorite time of day where if you don't turn the lights on, it stays light enough for you to see for quite a while. But once you turn a light on and then turn it back off, that outside light doesn't seem enough anymore. But there was three three of us who played. We would play in her attic. We would play outside. She had a pretty good sized lot to her house. She loved to play tricks on us. She taught us to try to have a sense of humor in a fun way. And she gave me pockets of time to just find little pockets of joy. One of my cousins, I call him Johnny. It's been 30 years ago today since he passed away. He would be 60 years old. Oh, I wish I could picture him at 60. So I've I've been lately thinking about him a lot and trying to piece together memories. You know, I was younger than him. He was the oldest of the three of us. And the we all went through challenging times. I'm not going to go into family dynamics and the challenges that we all faced, but he faced some really hard times in life as I did. And as our other cousin did. And that's when we, we kind of, once he got in teenage years, he, he moved further away from uh, where we lived and my grandmother passed away when I was at my first week of my senior year at high school. And so we lost that connection. We lost that place where we were together. And so then the details of his life 
became less clear to me. We were, we were distanced and I missed that relationship. I missed his laughter. I missed his music. He could play so many musical instruments. He, um, we got in trouble one time because I, I'm not good at music. That's not my talent. And I thought his music was beautiful. I used to love to hear him sit down and play the piano. And we were where there was a piano one time. And he told me that I could learn to play the entertainer and that he could teach me. And he soon realized that music was not my gift, but he knew how much I found it beautiful. So he took what we thought was erasable, something that we could clear off the piano keys. And he numbered the piano keys in the number that I needed to hit them to play the entertainer, just a part of it. Then we found out that it, the piano keys were not as cleanable as we thought. We were in a little bit of trouble for that. But then this is where family dynamics come in. All of a sudden, people stopped talking about him. People stopped mentioning him. People stopped including him in places where I was also included. It was years later that I found out because that's when he came out as gay. And suddenly, you know, my family just didn't have anything to say. They were not affirming. They were not inclusive. They didn't know what to do with them. The once beloved relative of mine was somehow now on the outside. And I didn't know why. Nobody talked to me about it. Nobody told me what was going on. He moved to Atlanta started an amazing interior design business. So talented. I have since seen some of the pieces that he created and learned the history behind that. And he was just absolutely amazing, thriving in that community. But then along came AIDS. This was the late 80s and early 90s. And AIDS hit gay men particularly hard. If you go back and look at those times, if you live through them, you know what I'm talking about. The worst is that nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to be around anyone with AIDS. Nobody wanted to admit that anybody with their family had AIDS. And so I was, being younger, I was still on the outside. I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't have a clear grasp. Nobody was willing to talk to me about it. His name was mentioned every once in a while. I knew he was sick. Then he moved to Key West. And then I had the opportunity to re-engage with conversations, to talk to him on the phone. I was living in Atlanta at the time. And I, I had opportunities to, I was a student at Emory, and I had opportunities to get to know him again to talk to him again, to find out that he had had to watch his partner die a slow death of AIDS. And now he had AIDS and he was suffering greatly. And there was nothing I could do. I, I couldn't get there to him. I didn't have money to help him. I didn't have any resources to help him. And I had to just cherish what time we had left and put those memories together. Now, when he passed away, remember, this was the 90s. He passed away 30 years ago today. And I was asked to come down and lead his funeral. If you think about the time, this is when churches, nobody wanted anything to do with anybody with AIDS. So I want to read today what I wrote for him at the time. And this is just part of it. 
So John had the vision and Johnny had the vision and the wisdom to create safe spaces for his growth. He helped make a family full of love and truth. He surrounded himself with friends who knew him and loved him, and he created a happy life. But Johnny had the courage to do more than just hide and worry or to be consumed with creating happiness only for himself. He too dreamed dreams, saw visions, and prophesied. Johnny dreamed of the way things ought to be. He looked at the world and knew that he could make a difference. So he had the courage to remind us of the fuller, richer life we can create. He actively kept up with current issues. He voted on election day so he could be part of bringing about changes in policies that he knew were wrong. And at the same time, he reminded us to laugh in the middle of all of our seriousness. He reminded us to have fun, to scuba dive, to play, to dine with friends. For he dreamed dreams of a world that would change and a world where laughter could be shared by all. John dreamed dreams and he saw visions. He could look at a blank area and envision plants and flowers abounding. He could look at a piece of cloth and envision a new creation, a new addition to someone's home. He saw beauty in places where many of us would have never thought to look. But he shared with us his visions. He gave us the gift of new sight. So Johnny dreamed dreams, saw visions, and he prophesied. He spoke the truth boldly and proudly. At a time when it is much easier to remain silent in our world, Johnny provided a voice. And for those of us who listened, he gave us the voice of courage. He had the courage to look deep inside of himself and discover his love, his strength, and his own beauty. He had the courage to determine the quality of his own life. Even in the midst of his illness and his hardships, he committed himself to living life fully. And even in the face of death, he declared a victory. For that part of the AIDS virus that was in his body has died forever. But Johnny will always be with me. His body has gone, but his gifts remain. We rejoice over the gifts we received from Johnny. We rejoice that we had a son, a brother, a friend who is a lover, a thinker, a feeler. We celebrate courage and hope and peace. We celebrate beauty and compassion. We celebrate laughter and even tears. And we cherish our memories. That, to me, was the gift that I could give him of telling his story. See, it matters who tells our stories. Because as people remember, they can decide what they want to remember about us. We often weed out parts of people's stories when we tell it and choose to see one aspect of a person. So many people only saw him as a gay man who died of AIDS. Many people at that time even said that he deserved AIDS because he was living a sinful life. What a horrible thing. I mean, I can't even imagine saying that somebody deserved that illness. But that was the language of many people in churches at the time. And so the gift that I could give him in a small way was to tell the good things that I saw. And after I read that, we all, his funeral was on a boat. His friends in Key West chartered a boat. We went out and we scattered his ashes at sea. And it was a beautiful moment because I was sitting on a boat with people who loved him, with people who knew his story. 
with people who also had AIDS and knew what was coming next for them, with the ones who were fortunate enough to have not contracted AIDS and were now the caregivers for an entire community. That was love in action. That was just so powerful, the community that they created there. And yet people who were on the outside were judging them and were saying that that is not community and that's not what love looks like and that's what sin looks like. But what I know was the genuine goodness and love that was there. When I landed, when my plane landed in Key West, I, I had to fly. I can't remember where I flew into, but then I took a small plane down to Key West and you could see the beautiful water. It was a clear day. You could see uh, marine life in the water. You could see boaters out on the sea. You could see families vacationing. I come into Key West and a guy named Robert picked me up at the airport and he immediately said, tell me your, your, your biggest secret. And I said, what? And he said, tell me your biggest secret. And I tried to think of something to say. I thought this person is who I'm hanging around with for the next four days. So I've got to think of something. And I was trying to think of something to say. And finally I asked him why. I don't really remember what I told him. But uh, I was not one to open up much about my personal life at the time. So it probably was not really my biggest secret. But I asked him why. And he said, because where you're going, you're about to see what life is really like for us. And that's our biggest secret. We don't get to share this with the outside world because they judge us. And so we have to know something personal about you. So as we grieve Johnny's death, we can show you our deepest secrets and our deepest hurts. So let's even the playing field and tell us about you. And so we did. We had a beautifully deep conversation, probably one of the deep, deepest conversations I had ever had with anybody in a long time. Because at the time, I had so much family drama and pain going on that I pretty much stayed surface level so nobody would see what was really happening in my life. And in that moment, I wasn't with anybody who was causing me pain or hurt. At the time, I was married to a very abusive person. That person did not fly down with me. I was not near anybody who judged me. And I had the freedom to just be myself. And I thought, what a gift this community has given me for four days to see their pain, to see their love, to see their laughter. And they knew how to face the uncertainty in life. They knew how to face the storms, literal, figurative. They, they knew. They knew what was coming. They just didn't know when and how and in what form. AIDS was different for every person, the, the, how quickly they passed away, how much they suffered beforehand. So Robert stopped at a sandwich shop. I don't remember the name of any place I ate down there, but he took me in, ordered a sandwich. Tell me what was his favorite. Tell me about the people that I was going to meet. And then we walked into the house where Johnny died in and had suffered with AIDS and everybody was silent. And I knew that they were holding their breath 
and waiting to see what I was going to do. How scared was I of AIDS? Because most people didn't want to be there. I mean, that's why I was giving the funeral. No church wanted to be around. No pastor wanted to be there. Most doctors didn't at that time, still didn't want to treat somebody with AIDS. And so I knew what they, I knew. Because I was a person who was also judged. I was a person who, when I tried to tell the truth of my life, people would say, oh, that can't be right. You know, my abuser to everybody else, to so many other people was such a nice guy. And so I was the one who was judged. And they were waiting to see if I was going to judge them. And they held their breath and I walked in and I knew that I had to do something simple. So I just said, can I have a glass of water? It's been a long day. Can I have a glass of water? And I, I set my bag down on the floor and I just sat on the couch. And it was a very small space, just had a little, little, one really a couch, kind of love seat type thing and a bed and um, bathroom and kitchen, kind of just all in one open room a little bit. And they got me water. And that was one of the first times when we were going to get a snack and I went to wash my hands and they asked me to use antibacterial soap. That was new. You know, I, I had never had antibacterial soap. I just grew up having bar soap by the sink, get a little soap dish, wash your hands, move on. And my first instinct was to think, oh, how nice. They don't want me to catch AIDS. They're doing this for me. And then one of them said, just in case you have an illness that you don't know, you'll protect everybody else here if you wash with the antibacterial soap. And then I realized they were asking me to protect them. I mean, they cared about me too, but I was the outsider. I was the one who could bring in some minor illness. You know, if I had strep throat and didn't know it at the time, or if I had the stomach bug and just hadn't showed symptoms yet at the time, I could have wiped all of them out. And they wanted me to be careful to protect their life and to show them the respect that they deserved. And I did. And the fact that I was willing to drink out of a cup and to trust them that they had washed that good enough and that they understood then, at the, by that point, it was 1993, and they began to understand that blood was transferred through blood alone. And so they knew that they were not going to give me the rules were don't use anything that uh, could have blood on it. For example, don't share a razor where if somebody cut themselves and don't share a toothbrush if somebody's gums were bleeding or something. And so they had researched, they had found the science behind how not to transmit AIDS to another person. And they knew that what they were asking me to engage in was safe. I wasn't going to catch AIDS from drinking water. I wasn't going to catch AIDS from sitting on the couch, being in the room from them. It wasn't, um, transmissible through the air, through a sneeze, anything like that. So they knew that they were protecting me and they were asking me to also protect them. Those, those days with them were beautiful. Uh, I met Maggie, a nurse who was donating her time to care for the, basically she was becoming their hospice nurse. She was trying to do her best to ease the pain. She was going from person to person and trying to treat the hardest symptoms and give them dignity in the last days of their life. I met the person who carried Johnny on 
his back to see the beach one more time before he died when that was his wish. I want to see the water again. I met the person who was donating his own money to try to get them medicine that they needed because insurance, nothing was covering anything back then. There was nobody, you know, treating them officially the way that they needed to be treated. Um, I laughed. I became part of the group for four days. They opened the doors wide enough for an outsider. They put a chair at the table for me. I remember one person said, uh, hey, grab the, the cheese. I have some cubes of cheese in the refrigerator. We were over at somebody's house having dinner, and I, I couldn't figure out why they were telling me to get the cheese. I opened the door, didn't see the little cheese cubes there, went to grab them, and all of a sudden, little bitty dogs were all around me. That was their treat. They knew. They thought it was funny. They were showing me a glimpse of their humor. The dogs would come and sit on two legs, sit up and beg for the cheese cubes. And it was absolutely adorable. And in the midst of what was hard and planning the funeral, they wanted me to see that. They wanted me to get a glimpse of something that brought them joy and see their dogs. And it was fun. They were willing to, you know, fun in the sense of joy in the middle of hard, not fun in the sense of going to Disney World or a great hike or anything like that, but fun of experiencing the depth of life, really the, the intense depth of pain. There was no hardly any other pain deeper than that at that time that I could imagine. And that was dying of a disease that nobody wanted to acknowledge. Nobody wanted to pray for. Nobody wanted to care for you. You were dying away from the people that you had grown up with, that you had called family. And you had no answers. You know, people were tossing out things like, well, there's a hell and you're going there. This is, this is what you get for being gay and getting AIDS. There was people who were publishing things like that and putting out that message and telling them that to their faces. And so you were, you were dying without even the comfort of people telling you things that you had grown up with that would other people had been told about finding peace and being loved. And these guys and the nurses who were taking care of Maggie down there, they created a community that blocked all of that out, blocked out all of that negativity and said, not here. We're creating a community where we're going to love each other. We're going to take care of each other. We're going to stop this, you know, horrible gossip about our lives and what we're like. And we're going to see the beauty. I was honored to get to present um, after he passed away, his AIDS quilt and that of another cousin went to Tuscaloosa, Alabama when they were doing a ceremony where you could officially present it. And to be able to add his name to something so beautiful and so touching and so meaning meant a lot to me. And so when I think back on his life and I remember, you know, I can remember being in my grandmother's yard and him saying, get up on my shoulders. I want to show you what it feels like to see for, he was tall and he put me up on his shoulders and he held me up. He said, stand up. I've got you. You're not going to fall. I'm going to hold you by your ankles. I'm going to slowly stand up. And I remember standing on his shoulders 
and it looked like I could see the whole little town that we lived in. Totally new perspective. We climbed trees together. We played on top of the garage, a flat roof garage. We played in my grandmother's attic. We, we laughed together. He gave me that gift of having pockets of joy in my childhood that I can now remember. And so one of the gifts I can give him back is being his storyteller. Being the one who tells the truth of his life. Because a lot of times people retell stories to fit their agenda. To fit the agenda of what makes them comfortable, what they want to remember. But the truth is, he was loved. He was loved. He was the embodiment of love. He loved those people. He, when, when his partner was one of the first ones to, to get AIDS in their area in that first wave, he didn't leave. He didn't panic. He stayed. He cared for him. When he needed to find a place for him to pass away, he found that community in Key West and that community lived up to it. I, I don't know what happened to the rest of that community. I don't know what happened to the nurse. I don't know what happened um, to some of the others that were there. I do know what happened to some. Many of them were already uh, showing signs of AIDS when I was there. And at that time, there was nothing that slowed it or stopped it. Once you had full-blown AIDS, it was a death sentence back then. But why do we tell people stories like that? Why do we, why would I, why would I now, when, when none of you listeners probably knew him, why would I honor him by telling his story and remembering and going back and digging up old pictures of him? There's one that sits on my desk and every time I write, he's there. Because the stories matter. And telling it correctly and accurately and in truth matter. To say he did not deserve that pain. No one deserved that pain. That pain was not handed to them because of anything they did wrong. They were amazing. They were more loving than any group of people that I saw at that time doing any other work in the world. They didn't run in the unpredictability of life. They faced it. They faced it together. They built a community. I hope that we can learn lessons from that. I, I know that there are people still doing that type of work. You know, there are people that are still, I remember that famous picture where Princess Diana had the nerve to go into an AIDS hospital and actually touch someone with AIDS. And the world was like, oh, how does she know she's going to bring it home to her kids? What a horrible thing. But by her telling their stories and her showing up there, she showed people their beauty, their humanity, the love that was in the room for them. So take time to dig through the stories of people who faced such hard times in life and still found love and community and created pockets of joy and hope and lived life to the fullest, no matter how much pain they were in and gave other people the chance to do the same thing. Tell their story with truth and dignity. Don't hide their story behind confusion or lies or myths that people tell. 
I know their story because I went there. Because they opened the door. They put a table, a chair at the table for me. They made room for me. And they didn't know me at the time. They didn't know whether they could trust me. They didn't know my secret until I got in the car with them. And they didn't know anything about what I faced. And I remember one of them picking up his ashes and uh, dropping me off to shop, stores at Key West, and said, I want to ride through town with him one more time. I'm going to ride around with the ashes. And he did. And that was his way of grieving. That was his way of honoring him. That was his way of saying, I'm not going to forget you. So as people tell their stories and as people who had no outlet to tell their own stories, look to find them. That's why my episode, that's why my podcast is called Look to See Me. Look to see these stories. Look to see the people who are telling these stories. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you come back again soon.